This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is supported by Agate, publishers of the highly praised debut novel Looped by Andrew Winston, telling the intertwined stories of a diverse group of 21st century Chicagoans. Looped was described by Kirkus Reviews as, quote, a love letter to rough and tumble Chicago. Looped is available at bookstores everywhere. For more information, go to agatepublishing.com. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 18th of March in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll talk to Anthony Arnov, the well-known leftist publisher who's also the author of a new book, which is modeled on an old book. He's written a new version of one of the classic books of the 60s anti-war movement. We'll talk to Anthony Arnov about both books, old and new. But first, here's a look at some news from the book world. Well, the moment you knew would come at last has come at last. Earlier this week, Google formally invited publishers from the U.S. and the U.K. to sell online access to their copyrighted texts through its book search site. This is not the company's Google Print Library program, which has been copying copyrighted texts without permission already, and for which it's being sued by the Authors Guild and the American Association of Publishers. In the newly proposed program, Google users can get immediate access to browser-based books, but they wouldn't be able to save a copy of the book to their hard drive. Uh, Not for at least five minutes or so in any event until somebody figures out how to do it, just as users can now take full advantage of Amazon.com's look inside the book program to copy out entire books. Uh, But that's another matter. Anyway, Google insists the new version of its program will help publishers boost book sales. At the same time that Google's not saying how many publishers, if any, have been gulled into joining the program. And now, back to the ongoing saga of the Da Vinci Legal Code. In London this week, author Dan Brown spent several days on the witness stand and revealed that his wife may have processed some material from the book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, the authors of which are suing Brown and his publisher for ripping them off. He also revealed that his wife came up with the key theories of his book and that she does his research for him and that she communicates it to him via email from another part of the house. Brown also revealed that his last publisher, Simon & Schuster, was the Antichrist. Brown went out of his way to trash his former publisher at great length, observing that his last book, Angels and Demons, was every bit as um, good as the Da Vinci fluke, and they couldn't sell it because they didn't know anything about marketing books. He said his wife had to step in and do it for them, and, quote, we were forced to literally sell books out of our car, close quote. Must have been some car... To date, the book has sold a quarter of a million copies in hardcover and 1.1 million copies in paperback. Meanwhile, Brown's wife, Blythe, although under regular discussion from the witness stand by her husband, has, like Jesus, 
not yet appeared in the courtroom. Jesus was, however, in Thibodeau, Louisiana this week, where he helped a woman who doesn't know how to speak without using his name in every sentence find a bunch of dusty books piled up by the side of the road that turned out to include a priceless 17-volume first edition of Victor Hugo's 1862 extravaganza, Les Miserables. They were signed by the author, no less. Margaret Mary Cranwell told the New Orleans Times-Picayune that she was out riding her bike when she spotted the books and decided to take a couple home, telling herself, I don't know why I'm getting these old dusty books. Jesus, I guess you have your reasons, but I have no clue. That was a quote. When she got home, Jesus apparently whacked her on the back of the head and told her to go back and get the rest of the books. Cranwell says that in the middle of breakfast, quote, I had this strong feeling that Jesus was asking me to get the rest of those books. Close quote. Jesus then told her to take them to the Philosopher's Stone bookstore nearby Covington, where she told owner Jerry Leitch, quote, Jesus is bringing blessing to your house. There's got to be a rare book in here, close quote. Well, there was. Leitch pointed out the Hugo to, to her, and what's more, he opened up one of the volumes to find a love letter handwritten by Hugo to an anonymous correspondent also, two loaves of bread and a fish. Everything so far appears to be authentic. And Cranwell and Leitch plan to sell the books at auction. Cranwell says, quote, Jesus answered both of our prayers, close quote. Meanwhile, no word as to whether Jesus has answered the prayers of someone who's been looking for their missing set of first edition Hugos. TV evangelist and megachurch proprietor Joel Osteen Got good news from above this week, too. Simon & Schuster, remember them, terrible publishers, signed Austin to what insiders are saying could be the richest book contracts in history, worth as much as $13 million to write a follow-up to his last book, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. That book sold 3 million copies, as well as 1 million copies of what a New York Times report called Associated Journals Daily Devotionals and study guides. The Times reports Osteen was asking for a guaranteed $13 million for the book, topping the $8.5 million Pope John Paul got for a book, as well as the $12 million Satan, uh, I mean Bill Clinton, reportedly got for his unedited doorstep, doorstop. In light of the astonishing deal, Osteen, the pastor of the Lakewood megachurch in Houston, was asked about the fact that he regularly preaches on the importance of tithing. He told reporters, tithing? I said, teething. Teething is very important in order to uh, live up to your potential. And finally, three historians lived up to their potential this week by winning the prestigious Bancroft Prize for writings about history given out annually by Columbia University. Odd Aaron Westod won for the Global Cold War, Third World Interventions and the Making of our times. Erskine Clark won for Dwelling Place, a plantation epic. And Sean Willens won one of the $10,000 prizes for his The Rise of the American Democracy. I guess that was in the ancient history category. And that's news to me this week. I'm Dennis Johnson.
It's Saturday, March 18th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is March 19th, and that day in 1842 was the opening day for French writer Honoré de Balzac's play Les Résources du Quinola, and the theater was completely empty. Hoping to create excitement about his new play, Balzac had started a rumor that it was sold out. Unfortunately, his publicity stunt backfired when all his fans believed him and stayed home. Monday is March 20th, and on that day in 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery novel Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. The novel was a huge success. It sold 300,000 copies in just three months and contributed greatly to the rise of anti-slavery sentiment in the years leading up to the Civil War. And Tuesday is March 21st, the birthday in 1816 of novelist Charlotte Bronte, author of Jane Eyre and sister to Anne and Emily Bronte. And Wednesday is the 22nd is the birthday of novelist Louis L'Amour, born in Jamestown, North Dakota in 1908. L'Amour, the virtual inventor of the Western genre, is one of the best-selling novelists of all times. Perhaps because he enjoyed a statistical advantage, he wrote over 101 books in his lifetime. Thursday is March 23rd, and on that day in 1917, Leonard and Virginia Woolf started the Hogarth Press with the mission to champion new and experimental writing, which they did mostly, uh, publishing Catherine Mansfield and T.S. Eliot, but declining to publish James Joyce's Ulysses because of its extreme length. Friday is March 24th, and on that day in 1905, soon-to-be Melville House author and father of the science fiction genre, Jules Verne, died. And Saturday is March 25th, and on that day in 1955, the U.S. Customs Department seized 200 and, excuse me, 520 copies of poet Allen Ginsberg's book, Howl, on the grounds that the book was obscene. Hal was published by City Lights Bookstore, whose owner, poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, was brought up on obscenity charges. With the ACLU leading his defense, the trial determined that the poem was not obscene, and Ferlinghetti was found not to be guilty. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know your chicken. Anthony Arnov is on the line. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Iraq, The Logic of Withdrawal, coming from the New Press. Anthony, welcome to Moby Lives Radio. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, your new book is kind of an old book, isn't it? You've, you've done something interesting. You've modeled your book um, on a book written by Howard Zinn in the late 60s, I believe it was, called Vietnam, The Logic of Withdrawal. What inspired you to do that? Well, I was uh, recently rereading Howard's book, uh, which was published first by Beacon Press in 1967, mm -hmm. and then when I was an editor at South End Press in Boston, we republished that book. It had gone out of print, and we felt at that time that it was still a very valuable book, mm -hmm. uh, but it became much more va valuable in the context of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, where 
I felt that the history of the Vietnam War uh, had some important lessons for today. And as I reread Howard's book, I was struck by how many of the arguments people made around the Vietnam War have come up around the intervention in Iraq. And in particular, the number of liberals who felt like maybe it was wrong to have gone in, Mm -hmm. maybe the Vietnamese people didn't want us there, but we couldn't just withdraw hastily. We, We had an obligation to somehow see the uh, war through to uh, a just conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, that logic led to the death of millions of people um, uh, and an extension of the war far beyond the time that Howard wrote it. Uh, Howard was very prescient in describing the, the, the crisis in Vietnam. He, this book came out in 1967. The war didn't really come to an end until 1975. Right. Uh, and in reality, the people of Vietnam to this day are still suffering its consequences. Now, for those of us who didn't read the the model for your book, the Zin book, did he actually propose a, a withdrawal program, or how how what did he say? How was the book structured? Uh, he uh, first of all, it was a very short, accessible, very popularly written book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've tried to model my book on on that format. And Howard tried to deal with the series of arguments that had come up around the nature of the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. uh, which at that point was seen as part of the war on communism, Mm -hmm. uh, much like the war in Iraq today is seen as part of the war on terrorism. Uh, And Howard tried to debunk a number of myths around the war in Vietnam. And then he actually ended with a speech that he wrote as if he were a speechwriter for Lyndon Johnson. in which he was explaining to the American people the reasons why he was immediately pulling troops out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't quite end my book that way. Because you couldn't find yourself writing a Bush George Bush power, speech. I couldn't quite yeah. put the words that needed to be put into his mouth. Um, <laughs> not to say that the Democrats really uh, are much better, but uh, you know, times have changed, circumstances have changed. So we end our books differently and Mm -hmm. of course there's nuances and differences to the arguments Um, but uh, I certainly was inspired not only by Howard's uh, method but by uh, his style his Mm -hmm. his approach to to popularizing an argument and Howard's book went through I think eight or nine printings rather Mm -hmm. quickly when Mm -hmm. it came out from Beacon Press and I think it did help uh, galvanize anti-war sentiment Mm -hmm. and um, you know, I would be thrilled if I could have even a fraction of the impact that that book had. Well, it sounds like one thing you have tried to replicate, uh, you, you've mentioned it a couple times now, is, is that he made it uh, uh, somehow uh, accessible to a general interest audience. How, how did he do that? Well, Howard's always had a very clear prose style. He's not someone who has extensive footnotes in the, in, the, in a way that is intimidating to a reader. Mm-hmm. He documents his work. He backs mm-hmm. up his facts. He has sources. Uh, but he doesn't overwhelm a reader with a kind of academic apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think Howard has a bit of wit mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in, in his prose style, uh, which I find very effective mm-hmm. uh, at... Um, cutting through the kind of, you know, in, in his time, the 
really the establishment propaganda in support of the war in Vietnam, and then the way in which liberals, to a large extent, bought into elements of that propaganda. Mm-hmm. And Howard also uh, was able to draw on personal experience, having gone to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also been to Iraq, um, and I hope that that perspective helps inform my writing as well. Tell me about that. When were you in Iraq? I was in Iraq under sanctions in the year 2000, mm-hmm. and I was working on the book uh, Iraq Under Siege, mm-hmm. uh, which South End Press published mm-hmm. uh, and I uh, edited. And at that time, uh, under Bill Clinton, the United States had led an international embargo against Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was done in the name of the United Nations, but it was primarily the United States and England that were responsible for the worst aspects of the embargo. And uh, I was concerned, as were many people, that the sanctions weren't hurting uh, people in positions of power, people responsible for the crimes that the Iraqi government had carried out in Kuwait and elsewhere, uh, but was hurting the poorest, the most vulnerable, the youngest, Mm -hmm. the sickest, Mm -hmm. the elderly. and that was very well documented uh, fact by the time that I was in Iraq, and I certainly saw that firsthand. But also, by that point, we also saw on the horizon increasing risk of uh, military conflict with Iraq, and uh, the Clinton administration was engaged in routine bombing of the country. Uh, that bombing was then continued by the Bush administration in the lead-up to the invasion of Iraq. And as the Downing Street memos have made clear, uh, the U.S. used the pretext of these U.N., supposedly U.N. established, but not not actually legitimately established, uh, no-fly zones, Mm -hmm. uh, as a cover for degrading Iraq's infrastructure before invading the country. Mm -hmm. Now, does... Do you do re- reportage on this in uh, Iraq, the logic of withdrawal? I don't have uh, reportage about the current situation because it, it was just far too dangerous mm-hmm. for me to go. Uh, so I've had to rely uh, in a chapter ca- which I called The Reality of Occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had to rely on other eyewitness accounts uh, from friends such as Darja Mail. Uh, who have been in Iraq more recently than I have mm-hmm. um, to try to present a picture of what's happening in Iraq. And it's, it's very hard because most of the information that we have on what's happening there is coming from reporters who are you know, basically in the green zone or are in hotels, very rarely are able to venture out and for the most part are getting their information fed to them from Pentagon and State right. Department right. spokespeople, and all too often they're still recycling that information, even though these are the same people who over and over again have been discredited in terms of the information that they've been providing uh, in the lead-up to the war, uh, in the immediate uh, uh, aftermath of the, of the invasion, and, and uh, on an ongoing basis, including just this week, the... Uh, President Bush saying that Iran was responsible for the uh, IEDs uh, in right. Iraq, and right. then of course it's coming out that there's absolutely no evidence for that right. for that assertion. Right. So what you're describing overall is a book that's that's both reportage and polemic. Um, 
who do you want to read it? Who do you see as the ideal off, uh, audience? Well, I, I'm trying to cast the net wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very encouraged by the fact that opinion polls right now show a widespread opposition to this war, even in the absence of any significant uh, anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the anti-war movement uh, is small relative to the numbers that are uh, indicated by opinion polls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to reach those people who feel something's wrong with the war, uh, it hasn't gone right, but aren't yet sure how to handle all these kinds of arguments mm-hmm. that are coming up in the media and coming up from friends and coworkers that they may be talking with about, well, what would happen if we left? Wouldn't there be a civil war? Right. Or wouldn't the Islamists take over and we can't allow that to happen? Or don't we somehow have an obligation to rebuild the country? So I'm trying to address those people, and I think there's many of them, who in their gut oppose the war but uh, need to be convinced um, of the, an alternative uh, to continuing the occupation mm-hmm. is is viable, mm-hmm. and also, you know, I think there's a number of people who demonstrated against the war, spoke out against it before it began, but then once we were there, felt like, well, now we can't leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the audience I'm trying to reach, mm-hmm. and I hope I can convince them that every day that the United States continues the occupation of Iraq, it's only going to create more instability, more danger, more harm and suffering to the people of Iraq, and more harm and suffering for the soldiers who have been sent to a country that they were told they were going to liberate, but in reality, uh, in which they are perceived overwhelmingly as a hostile occupying power. Mm Well, you're doing a lot to get the message out. I know you're doing uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, unusual promotion for the book, uh, unusual for for uh, uh, kinds of things to do for a book promotion. Uh, why don't you tell us about some of that? Um, I, I know, for example, you've got a concert coming up Monday, I believe. Yeah, on Monday uh, there's a concert at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. It's called the Bring Them Home Now concert. Uh, Michael Stipe from R.E.M. and Bright Eyes and uh, a whole number of other musicians are going to be performing. This is uh, on the third anniversary of the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, and this is meant to be uh, a public response uh, calling for bringing the troops home now, ending the occupation of Iraq. And it'll have musicians, it'll have uh, Cindy Sheehan will be speaking, I'll be speaking, and we're using this to kick off a whole series of events. Uh, we're doing an event on Saturday afternoon with with Howard Zinn and Amy Goodman uh, at the Quaker Friends Meeting House in New York City, uh, and Howard's going to talk about the his book and the parallels between Iraq and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about uh, the new book, um, The Case for Withdrawal. Uh, uh, try to summarize the argument I'm putting out in the book. And then we're going to a series of uh, cities around the country, and the New Press is pairing my book with uh, two other books, one which is being published simultaneously called Ten Excellent Reasons Not to Join the Military, (laughs) which is a really, really clever anthology 
um, of different people giving reasons why not to serve uh, in the U.S. military, including mm-hmm. Cindy Sheehan mm-hmm. uh, providing an introduction in which she says, you may be killed. And mm-hmm. that's one of the, you know. I would put that as number one. Yeah, that's yeah. the first reason she gives. But it goes through nine others, and they're all very strong mm-hmm. and really well written, and it's a, uh, presented also in a very popular style. And uh, the New Press is also going to be publishing a book by Camilo Mejia mm-hmm. called The Road to Our Ramadi. And uh, that book won't be out till later, but we hope that Camilo will join us on the tour in advance of publication and then that we can continue the tour uh, once his book is out in the fall. That book is by um, uh, Camilo Mejia, the first soldier in this war to refuse to serve and to declare his mm-hmm. opposition to the war mm-hmm. and to say he wasn't. Uh, going to fight in a war that he no longer believed in once he got over to Iraq and realized that this is not a war about about weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. or tyranny or democracy, uh, but it was a war about oil and about U.S. hegemony in the Middle East and that he couldn't kill or see his friends or see himself potentially be killed mm-hmm. for an unjust cause. And he's a very eloquent speaker, and I think he's got a very important story to tell and I'm I'm really proud that my book is being associated with these other books and I feel like Colin Robinson who's been the editor on this on this project uh, at the New Press really showed a lot of vision in, mm-hmm. in pulling these books together and that uh, Ina Howard and the New Press publicity team has really been dynamic and in, in thinking about how to uh, spread the spread the message well, I, I trust the various dates of these events will be up on the New Press website. There's two places folks could look. You could look at thenewpress.com, which is the New Press website, and also we'll be listing a lot of the tour events on howardzinn.org, which is Howard Zinn's website. Well, let me go back for a minute now uh, before we close and, and just ask you a couple of process questions. Did you work very closely with Professor Zinn, one of my old college professors, on this book? Uh, I did work closely with Howard. Uh, first of all, Howard uh, provided a forward and an afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Howard and I are in regular contact. He and I edited, uh, well, we've done two books. Well, we've done well, three books you together. You do a series with him, uh, don't you, the, uh, the, the Voices of a People's History? Yeah, Howard and I, uh, about a year and a half ago, published a book called Voices of a People's History of the United States, which was published by Seven Stories Press in New York. And we've been um, doing a series of dramatic readings based on that book mm-hmm. uh, with actors like Danny Glover and Viggo Mortensen and mm-hmm. Marissa Tomei and Sandra Oh and Paul Robeson Jr. and other uh, activists and writers reading from this book of primary sources in, in, in the kind of history of dissent and civil disobedience in the United States, the kind of history from below uh, presented in primary sources uh, as a parallel to Howard's classic of the mm-hmm. history of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we worked on that book, uh, and, w- and we're regularly in contact about these performances. We also did a book together called Terrorism and War, published by Seven Stories. And then when I was at South End, I edited Howard's play, Marx and Soho. Mm-hmm. So we're in regular contact, and I, I sent Howard the manuscript um, 
and uh, he gave me uh, very helpful uh, uh, feedback mm-hmm. on on the book and provides a, a brief forward and a very interesting afterward in which he looks at the kind of history of American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that history, that idea uh, that the United States is different than all other countries, it's different than earlier empires, uh, it's somehow uniquely benevolent uh, and disinterested. Uh, that idea is at the core of a lot of the arguments for uh, the, the, that would defend the U.S. role in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think debunking that idea is, is very important to challenging uh, the rationale for the occupation. Well, I'm glad you were able to, to work with him to get that perspective. Here we are repeating history. Um, but it's wonderful that, uh, that you had the perspicacity to take this project on to, to get Professor Zinn in on it. Um, I've got a very long list of people giving you plugs for the book here from, uh, from Tariq Ali and uh, Arundhati Roy and John Berger and Dennis Brutus and Eduardo Galliano. Uh, this sounds like a, a book that's going to be a hit, and, and, and I hope that it is. I really hope so, too. Thanks a lot, Dennis. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, and best of luck with the book. Again, the title is Iraq, The Logic of Withdrawal, forthcoming. What's the release date, Anthony? Uh, it's, uh, I think, April 15th. April 15th from the New Press. Anthony Arno, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guest, Anthony Arno, who spoke to us from his home in Brooklyn. And thanks, of course, to the crew here at Melville House. That would be engineer Andrew Steinmetz and our reporter slash editors Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher Valerie Marians. We'll be back next week. We hope you will, too. Meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. books.
Thank you.